Well, good morning. Uh, several months ago, uh, one of our dogs uh, got sick. Oh, this is getting everything. Uh, yeah, several months ago, one of our dogs got sick. Some of you know about this. Um, and actually, she had been sick for a while, and uh, it just became apparent to us several months ago. Uh, it turns out our dog, Macy, was suffering from heart failure. Uh, she's actually still suffering from heart failure. And I'm not saying this as a, as a sob story or asking for anybody to feel sorry for us. Um, but there's no undoing the damage. All we can do at this point is manage it. And so that's what we've been doing. We have, uh, since the summer, been giving her medicine once in the morning and once before bed. And unsurprisingly, she's not terribly excited to eat the pills on their own. Actually, she's pretty much unwilling to. Uh, so from the beginning, we've had to pair the pills. There are three of them uh, on different rotations. And two of them are pretty normal sized. And then one is like the size of a Tootsie Roll. And uh, we, so we've had to pair them with different things. We started with bits of a hot dog. We've done slices of cheese, just anything we can find uh, to get her to eat them. Now, pairing things like this is fairly... Normal. It's pretty standard procedure in all of life. We hide vegetables in our dinners and we reward ourselves with dessert when we've exercised that day. Uh, some might think of it as bribery, uh, but I think bribery makes it sound negative and, and bad. I, I just prefer to consider it encouragement. It's encouragement. And at its best, such pairings are exactly that. They are encouragement. We put a good thing we don't like with a good thing we do like, and voila, stuff gets done. We do this in relationships, too. Before saying something hard, it's almost always best to say something positive, something kind, something encouraging, something loving. We put the pill of criticism, so to speak, inside the hot dog of encouragement. Uh, and yes, I, I realize that is a little absurd for an illustration. Um, part of me saying that is just, I got a kick out of it. And it, from the sounds of it, you did too. But, but beyond just being funny and worth a chuckle, and I, like I said, just nobody came here this morning expecting anything in their life to be compared to stuffing pills inside of hot dogs. Um, but I, I believe that the ridiculousness of that illustration will help us remember what I'm trying to communicate, and it's the thing that God has done. God has taken a good but difficult thing and offered it alongside a good and delightful thing. And that difficult thing is repentance. And the delightful thing, as you may have guessed, is Christmas. The challenge of repentance is coming. It comes within the comfort of Christmas. Before we go any further, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Sunday mornings. Thank you for the time you've given us to gather together as your body, as your bride, as your people, as your children, as your family, um, to come together and worship you. Uh, Lord, we come here with many different things on our plates from many different places, um, facing different challenges and triumphs and trials and joys 
And Father, I pray that as we are here and as we prepare to hear your word, um, that we would give all of those things to you uh, and receive, as a matter of fact, all of those things from you. Father, I, I pray for um, just us as a church as we uh, turn the corner into Christmas Eve and Christmas and we consider what your word has to say for us and we consider what John the Baptist might have to say for us. Um, I just ask that you would make us in the people uh, you've made us to be, that you would grow us and mature us as we look to you, look to your word, look to your son and the power of your spirit um, to become more like him. Father, I pray that this morning, uh, the things going on in the classrooms, the things happening in here, the things happening elsewhere within this building, um, that they would be honoring to you, that we would be, again, the people you've called us to be. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, seven days before we celebrate the birth of Christ, we're going to look at several passages concerning John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not only a forerunner to Christ, but was in some ways the forerunner to Christ. John the Baptist was the final great figure of the faith before God himself arrived in the second person of the Trinity. So we're going to look at a bit of Mark, bits of Malachi, and then chunks of Luke in order to see the essential role of repentance in our lives. Then we're going to consider how repentance works. And then having done that, we will hopefully be prepared as John the Baptist was preparing the people. Because as we'll see in a moment, John was tasked with preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. And the primary means of preparation was baptism, to baptize, and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So as we approach Christmas, we should walk after John, with John, in repentance. So let's start with Mark. Looking at Mark 1, verse 4. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So first of all, John was in the wilderness. Within the storyline of scripture, the wilderness is the opposite of where humans are supposed to be. When God made Adam and Eve... He placed them in a garden, a cultivated paradise, teeming with life. And when they sinned, he kicked them out into the wilderness. When Israel was afraid to enter the promised land after God rescued them out of Egypt, they spent a generation wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness is many things. And it's not always bad It's not always a sign of condemnation, but what the wilderness is not is a place of rest. So John's presence in the wilderness was not just a quirk to make him stand out from the crowd. It communicated something, and it communicated that things were not what they were supposed to be. As the people journeyed into the wilderness to hear from John... The mere location was meant to confront them and remind them that better things were still to come. It's quite possible, however, that the significance of John in the wilderness was lost on those people. They didn't understand. It's it's very possible they didn't understand. Recall that John's ministry was to a people who had largely forgotten God. Not entirely, but they didn't remember God enough to honor him appropriately. That's why they needed to repent in the first place. 
So there's no need to assume that these were highly, they were highly sensitive to these rich scriptural symbols. But this message that John gave as he stood in the wilderness, it wasn't just about better things to come. It was also about the fact that everybody messed up. As John stands in in, in the wilderness as a sign of better things to come, he points to the masses and he assures them that the better things coming, the better things on their way were not for them unless they would repent and be forgiven of their sins. And right now is as good a time as ever for us to get clear on what is meant by repentance. Repentance is not merely a feeling of guilt or regret. Repentance isn't a sinking feeling in your stomach. It's not just confessing or acknowledging that you have done wrong. Repentance isn't the combination of that bad feeling with the confession of your wrongdoing. Repentance is more. Recently, I was driving somewhere and missed my turn. I was looking for a place in a business park, and right around the time I expected to find my turn, I found myself winding through an apartment complex instead. I'd been here once or twice. I knew the area enough to know I was not in the right place, but obviously not well enough to not miss my turn. So like I said, I pretty quickly recognized that I had missed my turn and I felt silly for missing my turn. I regretted that I had missed my turn. I confessed to the people in the car with me. There were people in the car and I said, hey, I missed my turn. But I had not repented of my mistake until I turned the car around to go back and look for the right turn. Now, fortunately, we hadn't gone very far and it was Simple to get back on track. But it's possible that I could have missed the turn a second time. It's possible I could have been really, really confused, really turned around and missed it again. But would that somehow invalidate my earlier repentance? Not necessarily. It would give me another opportunity to repent, another reason to repent. But it wouldn't necessarily mean my previous repentance was bad or invalid. And I offer that to say that repentance is not only repentance. Thank God. Repentance is not only repentance if it's perfect and we never make the mistake again. Repentance is repentance if it's honest. If I were to miss that turn a second time, a third time, a fourth time, because I was just simply avoiding the turn, then my repentance wouldn't be any repentance at all. It would be a cover up. It would be a lie. Repentance doesn't mean we'll never make the same mistake again. But it does mean we really see it as a mistake and we really make an effort to avoid it in the future. And because we are prone to wrong turns, repentance is also a continual rejection of the wrong turns that our hearts bend us toward. Repentance is a feeling of guilt It's a confession of wrongdoing, and it is a change of direction away from what is wrong toward what is right and good. John the Baptist was sent by God to bring about repentance in his people. Now, speaking about John in Luke 1, verses 16 and 17, the angel Gabriel says this. He's talking to John's father, 
Zechariah. He says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, this is an obvious reference. It might not be obvious to us all here right now, but it is an obvious reference to a passage in the book of Malachi. It's Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which we'll look at now, and you'll see how it's so obvious. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Because of this passage, this passage here in Malachi, and because of John's attempts to identify himself with Elijah through his appearance, through the clothes he wore, some people wondered if John the Baptist was actually Elijah. After all, Elijah did not die, but was taken into heaven by God. But John never claimed to be Elijah. In fact, he denied it. He was just John the Baptist. But he came with the spirit and power of Elijah, the very same Elijah who had spoken a drought into and out of existence, who had called fire down from heaven and raised the dead to life. Elijah had wielded tremendous power. And while John wouldn't perform miracles like Elijah, he shared in his power because both men drew their strength from God. John would use that power To turn many of the children of Israel to God. Now in a church like this one, we probably don't have many people questioning the importance of repentance. We know that we have to see ourselves, understand ourselves as sinners in need of forgiveness. That we have to turn from our sin and walk with our Savior. But it's worth repeating in a world as self-obsessed as ours... That repentance is essential to following Christ. The way for Jesus was prepared through the proclamation of repentance. People in the 21st century need to repent just as much as people in the first. The sweet little baby born in Bethlehem, remembered in the, the warm, incandescent glow of Christmas lights and nativity scenes, has grown up to become a king. And while he is a good king, and a kind king, and a fair king, he is still king. And all who would usurp his throne as rebels against his reign will be dealt with. They either recant and repent, or they're cast out and destroyed. And we all, every last one of us, are born into rebellion. And we all must repent so if we are going to accept the son of god born on christmas to be our savior and king who will one day return to establish his kingdom forever we have to give up all our attempts at ruling ourselves we have to repent so how do we repent well maybe that's a seems like a silly question we just talked about it this is what repentance is Repentance is turning around. It's like turning around when you've missed a turn. Repentance is turning away from your sin and toward your Savior. There's emotion. There's confession. There's a change in behavior. 
repentance, in a sense, is how we walk in holiness and sanctification. If we are going to go in the right direction, we have to reject all the ways we could go wrong. So to constantly turn back to God, we must constantly turn from the sin that our flesh still craves. And this is hard work. Maybe you don't think it's hard. I, I, I wonder if anyone is here thinking that, but it has to be brought up. Maybe repentance comes really easily to you. And if that's you, and if that's true, then God bless you. Honestly, God bless you. God bless you that repentance comes easily. And may you have humility with that, because most people don't work that way. But if you happen to think repentance isn't very hard, it might also just be the case that you've never really tried it. You might not think repentance is hard because you've made excuses for your sins. And if that's you, you're not the first to have done that. I've done it. We've all done it. Humans are freakishly good at justifying our sins. And the people in Malachi's day had made plenty of excuses for their sins. And the reason we're looking back to Malachi is because of its association with John the Baptist that we noted earlier. John the Baptist fulfills prophecies made over 400 years earlier by Malachi. And so we can reasonably expect to find things in this book, this book of Malachi, that shed light on the life of John and his preparation for the Messiah, even though they're separated by hundreds of years. And the book of Malachi, which is found at the very end of the Old Testament, reads a little like a courtroom drama. A charge is brought by God against the Israelites. And the Israelites incredulously say, who? Us? When God says they've despised his name, they say, how have we despised your name? When God says you've wearied me with your words, they say, how have we wearied you with, your wor- with our words? When God says, you've robbed me, they say, how have we robbed you? These people had made so many excuses for their behavior that they no longer recognized them as sinful. They were so far removed from God's word that they could no longer tell right from wrong. They had obviously missed a turn or two. Malachi 3 verses 13 through 15 say this says, your words, this is, well, it'll say God speaking. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The people to whom Malachi was writing, had begun considering it vanity, emptiness, nothingness, pointlessness to serve God. And inevitably, they began taking God's commands, his charges, less and less seriously. Malachi 1.8 suggests that the gifts they were bringing to the foreign governors who oppressed them, that those gifts were better than what they were offering to God in sacrifice. These people were people who had returned to Jerusalem after exile. They were forced to leave their homes 
Jerusalem had been destroyed, but now a new generation had returned and Jerusalem was being rebuilt. But rebuilding the city and the temple and the walls of Jerusalem had not ushered in the power and prestige and hope that the people had expected. And after a period of revival, their dreams of a revitalized Jerusalem and a revitalized nation of Israel, great and free and all the land that God had promised, those dreams were left unfulfilled. They were counting on God to come through and do the good thing he had promised. And he hadn't. And we can look at their behavior and know they're wrong because the Bible tells us so. But it's helpful to imagine ourselves to imagine yourself in that same situation to imagine what our hearts would be doing to imagine how easy it would be to believe what those people believed and to sin the way those people sinned i'll compare this with john the baptist's parents zechariah and elizabeth who were being prepared by john even before he was born so we'll flip back to luke and luke 1 says, in the days of Herod, this is starting in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. I know it might not look like there's much more here than a couple of historical details, um, but I assure you that's not the case. While we may not go so far as calling them heroes, Zechariah and Elizabeth are people worth emulating. Luke describes them as righteous and blameless. And these are not words that Christians use very often, if at all, to talk about other people. But here they are. Scripture is not saying that these two were perfect without any need of forgiveness. Instead, Luke is telling us that they were faithful, loving and fearing God and trusting him to cover over the sins that they did commit. Yet for all their disappointment over their childlessness, Elizabeth and Zechariah never strayed from following the Lord. And in this way, Zechariah and Elizabeth are pictures of a life of repentance. Repentance is not just turning away from the bad. Repentance is turning toward the good. And Zechariah and Elizabeth lived their lives turned toward the good, never straying to the right or to the left. They didn't chase after other gods when the Lord didn't give them the good thing they wanted. Unlike the people in Malachi's day, they didn't grow lazy in their obedience when it wasn't paying off. Zechariah and Elizabeth kept trusting and following God no matter what. An unfulfilled dream can purify you like it did for Zechariah and Elizabeth. An unfulfilled dream can also disenchant you like it did for the Israelites at the time of Malachi. But an unfulfilled dream can purify you because an unfulfilled dream can teach you whether your hope is in the Lord or the life you wish you had. Do you love God for God or do you love him for what he can do for you? If you've experienced the pain of an unfulfilled dream, did you keep your life turned toward God the way Zechariah and Elizabeth did? 
Or did you find that your life was, and maybe still is, aimed at something else? Denying your dreams is a form of repentance. It is a form of turning back to God. And like most repentance, it doesn't come easy. Of course, maybe not of course, but this is good news. This doesn't mean that we can't desire change. And it doesn't mean that we can't have dreams. And it doesn't mean that we can't desire our dreams to be fulfilled. Which we can see in the story of John with Zechariah and Elizabeth. In Luke 1 verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. The angel tells Zechariah that his prayer had been heard. Zechariah had been praying for a son. This dream of a child that was unfulfilled didn't have to die. Zechariah didn't need to let it die, but he did need to take that dream to the only one who could give it life. And Zechariah got more than his wildest dreams could have hoped. What I'm saying right now isn't a pep talk to never give up on your dreams. Unfulfilled dreams just happen to provide an excellent vantage point for self-reflection. What I'm saying is make sure that your life is directed at God. Love God more than you love your dreams. If you want your life to be marked with repentance, this essential habit of faithful Christianity, then you must find your satisfaction in God. If you're going to make a habit of turning away from sin, you must place your hope in God. If you are going to be prepared to follow Christ, you must trust that God is enough for you. We're going to look at Luke one final time, looking at Luke 3, starting in verse 7. It says this. He, that's John the Baptist, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. One of the challenging things with repentance is that the obvious thing is not the most important thing. The obvious thing in repentance is behavior. It changes. Don't do this. Do this instead. But if our approach to repentance as Christians is nothing but behavior modification, then we are not really repenting. We're not repenting in the way that God desires. 
Because God isn't most concerned with your actions, but with your affections. God cares about what you love. And it's possible to change your behavior while loving all the wrong things. God wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Luke 3, we see John the Baptist in action. He's doing what Malachi prophesied and the angel Gabriel foretold. He's calling people to repentance. And it looks an awful lot like behavior modification and behavior change. But the interesting thing about each one of these fruits of repentance is, at least interesting to me, and hopefully to you, is that it's all related to having enough. To the crowds, to the crowds, can you risk losing one of your tunics because you loaned it and didn't get it back? Can you risk losing it because you trust that God will provide for you? To the tax collectors, can you give up money and trust that God will meet your needs? To the soldiers, the same thing. Can you give up money? Can you give up this power and trust that God will be enough for you? In all of these things, the question is whether or not God is enough for you. Can you be satisfied with God and what he's given you? Or will you grasp for more? This is the heart of repentance. This is the dilemma of the human race since Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not believe that God was enough for them. And so they grasped for more. The Israelites, many, many times over, did not believe that God was enough for them. And so they grasped for more. God was not enough for the Israelites in Malachi's day. So they rejected him and looked elsewhere for satisfaction. But God was enough for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they fixed their hope in him. If you do not believe that God is enough for you, you will inevitably turn from him as you grasp for more. Now this is the great comfort that God has given us with the difficulty of repentance. Because the call to repentance is difficult. It is, especially with John the Baptist, fire and brimstone. Repentance in so many ways is death. It's the death of dreams. It's the death of desires. It's the death of the lives we wish to have. And it's difficult to deny ourselves. It's difficult to admit that we've been wrong. It's difficult to admit that we are not in control and to relinquish control. But John's call to repent and the call to all Christians since the call of repentance is not a call To turn from something good and fun and exciting to something bad and dull and boring. The death that we experience in repentance is a death that promises to bring life in God. Repentance isn't just about avoiding God's wrath and judgment. We're not turning away from foolishness, the foolishness of sin, and heading back to a cranky old tyrant. Repentance is turning back to the God who loves us. Repentance is the prodigal son returning home to his father who has prepared the fattened calf to celebrate. Repentance is turning back to the God who sent his son, 
the Son of God, who is, in the words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. One week before Christmas, seven days away, as we prepare with one another, with John, and his message of repentance, we can be sure, we can be sure that God loves us so much that he sent his son to be born among us, to live among us, to suffer like us, to die for us, to rise for us, and to return in triumph and glory for us. As we prepare for Christmas, repent and know that God is enough for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are enough. God, thank you that when we turn back to you, you love us and welcome us. Thank you, God, for uh, your great mercy in saving us and rescuing us uh, from ourselves and from the, the, the traps and snares of this world. Father, I pray that you would give us faith to trust that you really are enough, God. And, and thank you. Thank you. Help us to see and understand and know, confidently know, that our faith isn't blind, God. That we can look through time and history and our own lives to see the ways that you have shown up over and over again. And we can look and see the ways that you have been enough in our own lives and in the lives of your people um, from the very, very beginning. God, so thank you that we are not making this up, imagining this. Thank you that we can come to Christmas and as we see the decorations and, and we remember um, why we celebrate uh, that, that you sending your son wasn't to just warm our hearts. God, you sending your son was so that we could, be, we could repent and be forgiven of our sins and that we would recognize that as such a great act of love. I pray that we would live out of the hope and the confidence uh, of that assurance, of your, the assurance of your love. And I pray, God, that we would, as a church, as individuals, and as individuals making up this church, that we would walk in repentance, um, especially as we prepare for uh, not just your coming at Christmas, but even more so your coming again uh, to reign in glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.